The coffee smells normal. Smell my cup. (laughs) (laughs) Smell the cup. Smell the side of the cup. Hi, and welcome to the third episode of Bleak Strategies. So far, we've been doing not a small amount of remembering, not always well-remembered. Hope that's interesting to you, because there's certainly plenty more of it in this episode. The point of this podcast wasn't just to remember, I don't think. It was to recount, certainly, how futile or farcical some of our contact with the music industry has been, but also to try and relate that to everything else, so much of which can so often seem futile and farcical. It was also to outline maybe some of the ways our small operation has dealt with some of that perceived futility. I'm not sure if we really managed that. But in any case, our constant sarcasm and withering distaste for doing anything that involves selling anything has displayed via social media more than reveals us for what we really are. Awful, curmudgeonly musicians who want nothing more than to make a living from obscene musical concoctions while at the same time rejecting the system we're forced to engage with in order to sell that music. It is, of course, this double thing that a lot of us practice every day when we go to work, buy lunch or pay the mortgage. That the system seems to work for so few is just as true of music as it is of, well, everything else. This episode of the podcast includes guest Dave Sanderson, who co-produced a lot of the more recent 65 material. And a lot of it discusses the interface between technology and music production and how one affects the other, both for people like Dave and Paul who understand that technology and people like me who just turn up with a guitar. Hopefully that stuff is interesting, particularly if you're into production. I think on a previous episode of the podcast, we've touched upon some of the other side effects of this ease of achieving results in the studio via new or improved technologies. We might not have. None of this is particularly well planned out and I can't remember. Nevertheless, we propose that having so much production choice at one's fingertips doesn't necessarily equal making music that is more sublime, compelling or interesting. Indeed, 65 days are often of the opinion that access to a limited amount of resources often inspires more interesting results. Bleak strategies indeed. But in this episode, you can hear us talking about hiring a producer outside of our usual budget simply because we felt that's what we ought to do. That the consequences weren't as we expected only reinforced our opinion that so much smoke and mirrors can only get you so far in the music industry. It's not that we don't want Alan Mulder to mix the next 65 record, it's just that the fact that's never going to happen doesn't mean making something relevant and compelling is out of one's reach. Presumably the inverse is true, just because Alan Mulder is mixing your record doesn't mean you've made a great record. At some point you've just got to trust the results you're already getting via your own means. Anyway, thanks and enjoy the episode. So we're here again in Sheffield at 65 HQ, and I'm just going to quickly introduce our first guest on the show, who is our friend Dave Sanderson, the top Dave Sanderson on a standard Google search with the safe (laughs) search turned off. (laughs) He won't like this, but Dave is a record producer, a recording engineer, a mixing engineer, easily the best guitarist in 65 Days of Static. (laughs) Um, who we met over 10 years ago now in 2006, 2007, uh, when we were recording in the legendary and now gone Mm -hmm. Two Fly Studios, which we'll probably talk about a bit in a minute. He mastered our Dance Parties EP in 2008 and since then has worked on every 65 release in some way, including Escape from New York, we were exploding anyway. Silent Running, Wildlight, No Man's Sky, and the new, unreleased, untitled 65 Days album, which we've just finished. 
as well as this Dave has worked on how many records Dave oh, I, just can't, I don't know I've lost count now over a hundred yes yeah well over a hundred albums albums yeah yeah yeah, yeah. plus lots of other plus lots of other bits I'm going to name some notable bands including the Jim Jones Review Reverend and the Makers Nat Johnson Hoods Underground Hoods Underground Little Band <laughs> they used to rehearse above us um, <laughs> and some guy called Polinsky yeah wow Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did that record. Remember that one? Yeah. So it is. There's another kind of 65 associate release that I worked on. Well, you should talk about that in oh, a minute. Clara, can I even remember? Like, when was that? It was 2011. Right, okay. Um, did you make that at Two Fly? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did, actually. Um, yeah. I think it was more of a mixing and kind of finally piecing yeah, stuff together, I was, think. There was some sort of slightly underwritten bits. That yeah. Need to flesh it out a little, a little bit. Little. If I listen back to that which probably haven't done for two or three years. <laughs> it's some total mismatch of programming that I had done and what I wanted it to sound like in my head. Right. Like there's, there's lots of really weak drums on there oh, that have been, you can tell have been sort of like fixed in, in right. the mix, but the source of the, sort of these kind of like cardboard woolly drums that were never going to become mm. uh, what some of the songs demanded. And uh, what they got left in. Yeah, because, you know, that was... Um, it kind of was what it was, I guess. Yeah, it? yeah. To a certain extent. I, I, mean, I don't really sleep over it, but... So, as with so many 65 Days related things, it was probably dictated by budget. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't. Yeah, not really. I mean, it was it was Monitoring Records who remain, like, the, the most supportive record label 65 have probably ever worked with. In real terms. Um, in real terms. But, um, yeah, they're a, t- they're a tiny label, and so... We had, I mean, we had like four or five days, I think, yeah, to pull it yeah. all together. So, well, we'll get to why you made that record then, because oh, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, <laughs> why would anyone want to listen to that? <laughs> Dave, do you remember how we met? It was around the time I'd just started working at that legendary, now defunct Two Fly. You'd been in for something to do something around like yeah, two thousand six, two thousand seven. Yeah, but I'm not entirely sure what. Yeah, and I think we just kind of hit it off I think we just chatted and we kind of had similar tastes and ideals yeah I think I think it's just interesting that we've worked together so much since mm. that on so many things mm-hmm. that we got into a way of working I'm sure I've described this a few times in various interviews is that we've seemed to have found a way where we have approaches that are not quite parallel so there's like mm-hmm. loads of overlap mm-hmm. but then certain things where we'd approach one way and you'd approach another mm-hmm. and we were just really good in those moments at uh, arguing without getting angry yeah, or yeah. defensive and, and we arrive at the place the where it should yeah. should be yeah kind of fits into my sort of personal approach of producing is to sort of stay out of the way particularly if the ideas are good and the artist knows what they're after ultimately would you say that we know what we're after yeah no definitely yeah absolutely i think i think there's always there's always a kind of a clear end goal but I don't think anybody knows what that is when, when you go into it yeah I think you know it when you hear it it's like knowing what it is kind of yeah yeah I always think when we're in the studio particularly with you is that there's always unlike other people in 65 who are really really good with technology mm-hmm. who just have no idea how any of it works mm-hmm. and have never really made the effort and so when you're saying like staying out of stuff what you're actually doing is doing a lot of really important stuff behind the scenes that someone like me just takes for granted like I'm going to walk into this room and someone's going to be and I think like over time we expand on that relationship because I know that you'll not do stuff I don't like whereas Mm -hmm. seven records ago we probably not on the same page 
there's always a learning curve, I think, you know, to kind of to, to doing that. Yeah. But I, but I guess that's something that we established quite early on. Which, you know, there's always got to be a, a, a trust element between artist and, and producer. You know, it's essential, really. Yeah. So to amalgamate all the different views and ideas, I think that was my role in a lot of the relationship that we've had over the last 10 years, particularly. Because mm-hmm. we did we start work on Exploded in 2009? Yeah, we'll have done some demoing, I think. Because that, that record took a while came out in the spring of 2010 we must have made we it we must have made it back in 2000 yeah. we should get into that story <laughs> um, well that is how you ended up producing that record isn't it so but before we do though yeah dance parties was the first thing right yes and you said you, you introduced that saying mastered but did you not mix it as well I think me and Alan worked on that together Alan, did yeah right yeah, I think I was, It was again, that would have been in my fledgling years. I think I was kind of more assisting on that. A quick um, biography of Alan Smythe? A very gentle character. Um, he doesn't pull any punches. He's, he's an incredibly creative bloke. I love him, I think he's amazing. He's one of the uncelebrated heroes Absolutely. of music in Sheffield. The scene that kicked off surrounding the large export from Sheffield from the last 15 years I can't think who you mean of course yeah um, he he was he started it he, you know he was there at the beginning it was him that actually you know story be known really if it wasn't for Alan that wouldn't have happened no and these are the sort of things that never get talked really. about in no. music there's so much it's of that stuff Sheffield that goes on to me. that sort of really good level of un- unimpressedness yeah that, that exists in Sheffield where people can just be quite not standoffish. I don't mean. I don't mean this in a bad way at all. Like you know, it's kind of like Sheffield has a lot of flaws in terms of its music scene is quite incestuous and I think it can be quite bitchy and weird. It be, yeah, it's quite separate in a, a lot as well. People kind of stay in their own kind of pockets and lanes. But I that's find. almost. It's. Um, I always feel like it's one of its great strengths is that there yeah. are people working away at stuff mm. and they're very working on stuff just to work on stuff yeah and it's hugely diverse as well absolutely yeah it was funny when people talk about this scene or talk about particularly that period of time and it being the the indie scene and it's like you know there was loads of other things happening you mentioned Hoods Underground there was a big UK hip hop thing happening in Sheffield yeah you know and obviously the dance stuff that's kind of come out of it you know that didn't ever really get champion or it didn't necessarily associate itself with Sheffield no and all the pop stuff you know kind of like the stuff that was happening at the Steelworks Mm. in the mid 90s it's not like going to Manchester, is it, where um, that heritage is so richly celebrated all the time? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like in Sheffield, thinking about Warp Records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Forge Masters yep. and all those early dance records. Mm-hmm. I think Forge Masters live next door. One of them lives next door to my old geography teacher. And, <laughs> you know, it's just. That's, that's where. Sheffield. That's Sheffield. It's, like, it's, not, it's not a lack of. Ambition, it's just like a lack, lack of e- ego. Yeah, maybe. I think like, so. I hope so. Just kind of yeah, yeah, hang around. Think is that. And so, like, Alan is the greatest, um, like, he's like an icon of that. Absolutely. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic and done some amazing records, mm. but also hasn't sort of, he didn't move to London or no, anything. No, 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 no. Or LA. Never had a he manager. Just, he just kind of hung around and yeah. did yeah. local bands, and just starting out as often as yeah. any of the, the, the other stuff that came his way, right? I think 65 feel very fortunate to have met him. Yeah. Because, so Alan Smythe, who we're talking about, is a 
studio owner and record maker in Sheffield who used to own a tiny studio called Two Fly, which became a slightly bigger studio called Two Fly, which was co-owned by Alan and Dave. And you can find out more about Alan somewhere else. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think he made the fall of math with us in the first Two Fly studios. But more than that, if we hadn't met him, I think we wouldn't have made some... Like Alan's really good at really odd startling creative choices yeah. remember when we went to record one time for all time yep. and he said you've not finished this record go away and write it some more yeah cancelled the rest of the session yeah which yeah. is a brave thing to do for <laughs> studio owners to do at any any point in history really especially so. when you're paying someone yeah in a tiny studio which clearly needs some money <laughs> to say do you know what don't pay me because yeah. um that's the mark of a good producer though, somebody who kind of you know, knows knows that, that uh, an artist because obviously, you know, fall of math is a quality piece of work, and for him to yeah to have the, the the guts to sort of turn around to you and say, you know, yeah, let's let's uh, take a rain check. On Absolutely, this one. yeah. Alan always says production is a dark art, making mm. records is a dark art, mm-hmm. and I think Alan would say that telling us to bugger off mm-hmm. and is production, production and he's right. Yeah, but you don't get paid for that. Nope. It's just an involvement, isn't yeah. it? And. There's a frustration there, isn't there, for some people? Well, it's how much of the production role is 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 kind of wrapped up in so many areas of of record making. You know, it's not just putting a mic in front of a guitar cabinet or mic up a drum kit. You know, I mean, you know, traditionally that was an engineer's job, and a producer wouldn't touch that. Mm-hmm. But I suppose what's sort of happened as budgets have shrank and you know the, the recording industry's changed is that that falls to kind of one person to do that so you know so most i think most people in my situation now are producer engineers or producer engineered mixers or even producer engineers mixing and mastering you know i mean because nobody's got the budgets to kind of employ unfortunately other people to do that so it all has to occupy the same headspace and then the the other uh, aspect of the job is obviously developing the musical ideas and making the artist feel comfortable and to, to be able to express what it is and a lot of that is the stuff that is totally unquantifiable yeah, it's, but, a, it's a, so, a social necessary. role rather than a Absolutely. role. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, yeah, it's very hard to measure. Yep. Measure anything to exactly. do with that. Yeah, um, and, and how much of an influence that actually has on the outcome. What we're talking about is there is a parallel between what we're trying to talk about in this podcast about how a band who isn't the biggest export mm-hmm. Sheffield's had in the last 15 years, if you're just a band but you're making music, which some of that music is involved in really high profile stuff like No Man's Sky and you're still essentially left with a series of headaches on how to get that music made and all those tensions and I think what you're kind of saying is is that production has become similarly hollowed out or the actual job has been expanded where Mm -hmm. you don't get to turn up to a studio with X amount of engineers and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth you actually have to be a jack of all trades yeah it's been much more hands on with the whole the whole process which I think for somebody like me I mean I wouldn't call myself a control freak, but I it, it can be a quicker process. Do you know what I mean? That's I think that's the thing with having a smaller budget is that you you have to kind of shrink the time frame down. What feels unfair to me is that all of that is happening because of miserable late capitalism collapsing music industry mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like necessity. Mm. But sometimes working fast makes really good music. Yeah, it's exciting. That's sort of exploited. Yeah, um, because working fast it speeds up the whole process mm-hmm. and all of these creative productions just for the wrong reasons having all of the time and money in the world we all know isn't going to result in a better record better no. record no. Um, I mean, sometimes it would um, and you, you know there's all those stories from the 
heyday of like eighties, yeah. nineties, and yeah. like New Order or the one Spring Spines, the Talk Talk album, is it the Spirit of Eden? Do you know that album? I don't actually. Right, no. it was a huge album. I mean, basically, they were in in a, in a, a top studio for two years solidly. Right. Two years. I mean, this studio must be like, I don't know, maybe 1,500 quid a day back then. And this is in the 80s, it's like late 80s. Mm. And, uh, and A Spirit of Eden is a classic album, but you know, it's arguably, this is my own opinion, uh-huh. slightly pretentious. Right. And maybe it goes a little, like they had a little too much time. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. But yeah, again, yeah. that's, that's. But then again, there's like lo- Loveless. That took my bloody mm-hmm. Valentine years, right? And that's a, that's, that's true. An yeah, incredible yeah. record. Yeah, yeah. Non-linear measure in terms of yeah, the absolutely. creativity. Yeah, it can yeah. be really done really fast. It can take ages yeah. to be but good or bad. But money-wise, and the state of the industry mm-hmm. is is definitely headed very clearly in one direction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could also argue that technology has allowed the process to be quicker. Mm-hmm. For one thing, you don't have to wait for a tape to rewind when mm-hmm. you get to the end of it, you know, which is a couple of minutes. It's like it's instant, it's there. Yeah. So you can move on very quickly. You know, um, programming of, of synths, you know, the way that, that, that software synths particularly are now so quick to kind of get a sound up that would have taken your analog synth, you know, a good few minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's patched directly into your, your session. It's not mm-hmm. like you then have to kind of, you know, figure it out through a preamp and kind of, you know, all, all that. It's all there. So, so the. Yeah, technology has afforded the process to become quicker anyway, thus cheaper. Mm-hmm. And one person operating a computer and still being able to kind of manage all the ideas is, is actually doable. It's quite exhausting as well because you're in several different headspaces at, at a time. Mm-hmm. Plus you're being asked to capitalise on those days in the studio. Like you don't get to do a month anymore, you do two no, weeks. And so you do yeah. these long working hours and stuff. And Yeah, particularly with Exploding, I remember, just to go back to that topic. <laughs> I think we should really, like, <laughs> I'm just trying to think how to tell that story. Now, Exploding was quite a carefully written record. We were trying to get away from the sound that we'd... The sound and also the maybe the lack of playability of Destruction of Small Ideas. Like we wrote that record as a studio record couldn't play half of it live to any sort of degree of satisfaction. And that was my, that's my memory of exploding or starting exploding. It's just like, right, this is a record we're going to be able to play yep. from start to finish yep. in a really effective manner. Yes. And that might sound like we're just not very good musicians, which may be true, but also it's, it's not just about literally being able to play it. It's the, you know, using all of the technology and, um, Right, the things that a studio can provide things something that we've got much better at now, I mm-hmm. think. But at the time, it's just like, you know, if you write a song where it's thirty seconds of a band playing and then two minutes of crazy programming that no one can replicate live mm-hmm. on stage, that that's the situation we were in, right? I think we just made a record that no one, for whatever reason, kept a handle on how that record was being put together. Right, it was a huge sprawling writing process mm-hmm. and when we took it to the studio there was just too much material that probably hadn't been finessed enough and because we were working with someone new I think they were just trying to get it all to be yeah, get it as amazing as it could be for right. us but at no point did they say and this goes back to that production thing at no point did they say there's too much here mm. or this doesn't make sense and so we ended up layering and layering and layering things up in the studio mm. To make a record which some people who are listening to this think is 
really amazing. Mm. I don't think we've been secretive about the fact that we don't think that. Mm. It's got some ideas on it which I wish had been executed better. Had, had been executed better. But yeah. Am I right in thinking it's a transitional record, though, isn't it? From what you did before, in terms mm-hmm. of it being guitar, bass, and drums. Driven. No, I'd say that it's more that that record was as far as we could go, and that then what comes after is more of a rejection of of that record. Right. Okay. So I'd say those, like the fall of math, and then one time, and then destruction, have a they're a thing together. Mm. I think probably both of those things could be true. Like I agree with you, but then I was agreeing with Dave as, as you said that. Mm. But no, Joe, you're closer to what we actually felt. But I suppose if you're taking the long view now, right? Because destruction was about the loudness. We were really interested in the loudness wars, and so we were trying to produce a quiet record. Right. Okay. Which was a really odd idea. Because while I agree with all that stuff, we didn't we really, write a quiet record. We didn't we write just a quiet. To produce a quiet record with yeah. noisy songs on it. <laughs> yeah. And we were also trying to use electronics that sounded like organic instruments. So to disguise, I don't know electronics or did we, we just yeah I don't know like one track I can't remember which track but there's one track where we did like an unclicked drum take and then literally mapped all of the electronics like with this kind of warped tempo to, to the live drum take. Um, rendering like ultimately like all of these unusable stems when it came to like, uh, right, doing okay. anything with it live because there was no way to kind of keep in time with well no not unless you, not unless you kind of NTC it or something well that sounds like Paul's tech corner to me <laughs> <laughs> anyway we're not telling a very good narrative here because we're filling in but we're getting there we're getting like there. so when it came to making exploding we decided that not only would we change these elements of our sound but that we would hire a producer the theme of this podcast really is about production and how it's no bad thing to work with someone who just gets what you're doing it hasn't stopped our sound from progressing no. that we've worked with you mm-hmm. in fact what was worse when we came to make exploding was that we'd hired someone for quite a lot of money to help produce these ideas and we felt the reason for that was because we wanted some really serious production decisions to be made mm-hmm. because of where we wanted the electronics to sit right, yeah. and how it would reject the destruction of small ideas in that sense the electronics would sound like electronics and they would sit quite high up in the mix but we'd also be able to play it all live yeah and what we actually got was somebody who didn't really have any ideas Mm. and so after seven days of working with them out of a 14-day session we decided that we were going to sack them we didn't take into account the fact that we'd spent about a year if not more writing that record and we tried all of the ideas for all of the songs already right so it was unfair on any producer to a degree well he came in and he was like i think i think this bit needs a piano and we're like oh actually yeah we did that on a piano six months ago and we decided decided it really is guitar we know what we're doing we know this song and uh, but we got quite tired of that yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh he's watching football while mixing and recording as well when he yeah but we can't put that in the podcast so So what we can put in the podcast is that I drank 18 espressos uh, because I was so nervous and then sacked him and then had like a caffeine (laughs) crash. crash. (laughs) We went into the studio and we said, we don't feel like this is working out. You need to leave because not only is this not working out, but we now need to keep making this record because there's no more money. And so he said, okay, give me an hour. He got his computer. We went for a, a coffee more coffee for me. And he changed all the settings on the desk, which is pretty standard stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, zero the desk. And he took the stuff with him 
I think he took the session, the whole session with him. Yes, the entire session yeah, with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. And so we decided that we would start that record again mm -hmm. immediately mm -hmm. with you and Alan, mm -hmm. who was around, because mm -hmm. I think Alan did some of the drums at the start. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. And what you were saying about working fast, <laughs> I think I remember it as an amazing, it was exactly what that record needed mm. because suddenly we just stopped making the wrong decisions mm. because you could only really make one decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was also where the fact that uh, you, Dave and Rob work so well together recording drums, mm -hmm. um, which is something that like the basis of all 65 recording sessions tend to be the drums and getting those in place. Yeah, and we did them so part. fast. I don't know. I don't want to mythologize, but we got these 14 tracks down like a day and a half or it something. something like that. It was definitely within a two day period. Uh, they were long days. I remember that. <laughs> it was a long week. I yeah. I remember but you know, that. there's a great energy to that yeah, whole record. Yeah, and particularly like, um, well, no, to the whole thing. Mm. But I know that like, I felt so happy with how the guitars had come out because mm. I was felt so bogged down in those previous that previous record and how mm. overly thought out some of that guitar stuff was. Whereas it suddenly was like it's, it's fresher, wasn't it? It was kind of like punkier, yeah, 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 quicker, yeah, yeah. scrappier. Mm -hmm. But we also managed to achieve, I think, a better production value. And I think we kind of went well. This is brilliant. We can do all this here, mm. and that's kind of what we've done ever since. We've we've tweaked some some of the studios we use mm -hmm. and we've changed some of the mixing that we do mm -hmm. but basically that's how we make records mm -hmm. now what, whatever they sound like yep. so um, that's that story yeah and then after we made it there was that little brief period because we'd done the touring with The Cure and I guess our profile had never been re relatively speaking higher and there was some sort of small major label subsidiaries sniffing around Heard the demos. Um, no, sorry, no, heard the finished record. Right, so it was like, exploding. Yeah, right, yeah it was yeah. like, yeah, these are pretty good demos. Like, you know, you need some singing. Like, we want to make you the next Pendulum. But, um, but this is a really good starting point. It was a big label, wasn't it? It was a big label, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I maintain that had we gone with the big record label and tried to be the next Pendulum, things <laughs> would have been, been so unhappy at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talking about Fugue State, which at the time of recording only existed as the sound installation that we talked about in the last episode, or the mm -hmm. first episode, mm -hmm. rather. But it's also going to be the second release of the unreleased, unreleasable year-long project, um, the Fugue State EP, which will expand on that approach to using guitars and ebos in a weird way. Um, and Dave just reminded me that we used it in um, No Man's Sky. Yes, we did. Um, for... Red Parallax. Red mm -hmm. Parallax, yeah, the lead melody, the lead guitar melody, which kind of ties into production quite nicely, I guess, because that was written by, I think, me or one of us. It was played by me at first, anyway, on a guitar mm -hmm. and then played on a different guitar 
and then instead of quavers it was played with like held notes and different amps we tried all of these things and it just kept sounding like a guitar mm. because we wanted it to sound like a guitar but also didn't want it to sound like, like a guitar <laughs> and then eventually realized that we had all of those ebos with us and wrote some midi and played it on a guitar but with with that i don't want to take credit here but i may have suggested it yeah yeah yeah, you did. And it worked. That's production. Would you want a fucking medal? <laughs> <laughs> actually, yeah. I think I've got some footage of that, actually. I will can have a medal for I that. I've got somewhere in my um, archives. Yeah, it was lovely. It was very strobesque. I think we turned the lights right down and it looked really... Cool. looked really good. Sounded yeah. great, obviously, as well, but yeah, yeah. looked even better. Yeah. Yeah, I have those memories of that. And mm-hmm. I also have the fact that the front end of that song is so synth-heavy. Mm-hmm. We just didn't want another synth. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But maybe, maybe the better question is, how rewarding and how annoying is it working with a band like us that doesn't really have those nice, neat uh, distinctions between instruments that uh, sit in different you know, frequency mm-hmm. ranges mm-hmm. and uh, can be more easily put together? I wouldn't ever say it's frustrating. I think the, the only frustrating element is, is trying to make sure that it does the thing that you collectively and individually want it to. Do you think individualism in 65 days has got better? That's a leading question. It's got more cooperative, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I mean. But you've always been like that as a band, I think. It's one of the rewarding things as a co-producer to kind of be part of, is that everybody shares the vision, but that it still doesn't take away from your individuality. Yeah. It's like everybody's... It's, it's like it all kind of fits together. Rather than one person... For example, you know, if Rob was heavily into blast beats and it kind of not working. Yeah, that sort of thing has disappeared with time because you sort of start to realise, well, the machine of the band is bigger than Mm -hmm. the people in it. I think that's one of the best things about Mm. having been in one band Mm. for so long rather than lots of different bands. And you all work together as well. It's not not like, you know, there's, there's no one real lead. I mean, I know Paul kind of starts a lot of the things compositionally but yeah. you all kind of come together to create something that is wholly 65 yes rather than it's just been Paul's vision yes I mean I know some things kind of lean more heavily onto that Absolutely. because that's naturally going to happen yeah yeah that's but, probably going back to earlier thinking about it making that Polinsky record is part of that because 65 just got better and better and better and became so obviously this you know fifth thing mm that was taking on its own direction that was separate from all, all four of us, you know, this kind of collective endeavour that suddenly making music that I liked but wasn't... It wasn't suitable for... Wasn't suitable for 65 to in a new mm-hmm. way, perhaps, mm-hmm. because I don't know why. But that's only increased through time, right? And and these days we don't even really have... Our own instruments? No, not really. No, no. Our, no. Own, I th- our I think own roles? A lot of it's got very blurred, and I think that's quite exciting because you, you've kind of taken down them traditional parameters from a, a, a engineering production point of view. I think that it, feel, it just feels very liberating. I think particularly... Can we talk about the last thing we just did? Yeah, yeah. Whatever um, you want. Yeah. The, right, OK. Uh, you know, that, that was a very... It felt like a well-oiled machine to me, that, them, that last session that we did. You know, it was really, it was well prepared, but there was still room to kind of explore and expand upon some of the themes that were there. And because there were no boundaries, there was nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. there's hardly any drums on it, not to give anything away, but, yeah. you know, normally we'd record Rob's, set up Rob's kit and 
Well, exactly. Didn't even set the kit up for like three day, three or four days, uh-huh. which you know was kind of was a slightly Wild. disconcerting. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like you know it's, it's the removal of boundaries. It's. Um, and it's, I, think I think it's more that no one seems that worried about it at this point. Yeah, quite possibly. But that's very different from not caring. No. Like, trusting ourselves a little more, maybe? Yeah, yeah. KMF seems to be a really interesting example mm. because that got taken to the studio mm. with us thinking that, like, and we had been thinking for a, about a year and a half that it would open the yeah, new album. Strong. And then we got into the studio. We Sorry, Joe, maybe you... You thought differently, <laughs> but the, the other three of us thought. Yeah, but then it was it was very encouraging that I could come to the studio and say, "I think this is rubbish as an opener for the album," and everybody would go, "Yeah, all right." <laughs> I didn't say it was rubbish, rubbish. No, I just no, said, and that's brilliant. We scrapped it from the sessions, yeah. And then the version that we did put out in the first release of Unreleasable, yeah. that's like. It's, it's a better version. It's, it's got one synthesizer track from the album sessions and the rest is essentially the demo tracks that we recorded over four years or however insanely long we were writing that track. Isn't there something to be said about how liberating that subscription idea is? Because a lot of the big projects that we tend to work together on are albums. And mm-hmm. like we talk a lot about how an album is a form that is just simply the way we're all used to receiving music but some pieces of music are better as things that the internet just spits out into your life Mm -hmm. and that's how you take it on board and it it isn't a physical thing it's more um like when you think of a record you think of its artwork and Mm -hmm. like the phenomenology of an album is like all of these things Mm -hmm. but something like kmf i think of like the youtube video or something it exists somewhere else it's leaning into that form like those minute long videos lean into the constant churn of the daily internet it's just like here's a minute of music it's gone now but people are so used to taking on board things including us in that capacity that if you can go with that flow you can shake people up by producing content like that because you're not saying here's a minute long instagram video it's a teaser for the new album you're saying here's a piece of music coming out of instagram and Mm. i think the generations of people behind us are going to be much more au fait with that Mm. um we're just mucking with it aren't we really in a different way it kind of protects the album form because we still really think albums are incredibly valuable and need more attention perhaps and need to exist as a collection of songs that only together listened in its entirety properly articulate some sort of idea but it's also not saying this music has less value than that it's just saying this is music that has come out of that more fractured concentration spans of being on the internet of algorithmic music of all of the things that have gone into that and so it it works quite well as if that were a medium in itself Mm -hmm. like those pieces of music you're not devaluing the album tracks which have been specifically written to fit onto an album as a single Mm -hmm. form, you're saying that those pieces of music have come from a different process of writing. And so they have equal value. Yeah, it's like finding what's essential to the form. And one thing we definitely knew about the record is that we wanted it to be this nice, like tight and focused. Yes. And not make what we think were the mistakes of destruction by just throwing everything at it. And No Man's Sky it made total sense for that to be a big sprawling two LP mm. thing just because of the nature of the, the project. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in a different context, that sort of like expansive prog style release, that's not the band that we feel we are. And so at the same time, we have all of this material 
and it's not that one's better than the other but it's like it's a certain quality isn't it it's not like you're you know even even the kind of instagram snippets that you you're putting out they're always interesting and that it does add value particularly for fans of the band i think you know that are kind of being able to absorb so much more than just a record which you know again i don't think it devalues a record at all i think it does it it almost builds the anticipation of a record you know because it's a, it's a little dig into the kind of current mm-hmm. 65 psyche in a way but it's only very sort of short snippets rather than it having to be this finished thing yeah. I, think, so I think it's really interesting i think the whole idea of the subscription thing is incredibly interesting as well and brave as well it's it's not um I mean, it's not easy to to consistently write stuff of high quality thanks also i wish you worked for our record label <laughs> <laughs> slagging record labels <laughs> the podcast <laughs> but yeah you're right because it's only a few shades away from like incredibly cynical churning out monthly content yes um, yeah just, like you see it that's yeah. what technology is doing in the mm. world isn't it it's all mm. like moving to this service-based subscription-based mm-hmm. model yeah it's pretty problematic and so don't think we would have entered into this if we didn't already have this big kind of catalog that we mm. think is worth sharing but at the same time wanted to keep it like how we go into the studio we didn't want it to be all ready and filed ready to go and then just tease it over 12 months that's not no, interesting no, either, no so. that's not interesting for you as a band either i don't think to to do that you know it's is there's still room for it to kind of grow organically, isn't it? Yeah, because evolved, it's, it's, a new, it's a new thing as well for you to kind of venture into. So it's going to change and it's going to kind of develop. Yeah, we haven't actually mentioned that you mixed the first release as well. Yeah. And no doubt subsequent ones. Which I shall very much look forward to. Do you have to make a lot of music that you don't find interesting? To yeah. pay the bills? You don't have to talk about that. No, I'm happy to talk about it. Like, I've known you for a long time and we've known you for a long time and I've sometimes talked to you and you've had a frustration with what's out there. I think in the past I worked in a commercial facility and A, to keep that going and to kind of grow my profile, kind of have to do that because you, you just don't know. The next thing that could kind of walk through the door in a commercial studio could be amazing. The reality of it is that a lot of it isn't, the high percentage of it isn't, and you just kind of do it. But if you can see the positives in it, of it's it's all adding to to the learning because, you know, to, to be a particularly a a producer engineer there is a lot of knowledge that you have to kind of absorb yeah when i first started doing it i didn't realize it was as in-depth as it is to to be pretty decent at it you've got to know a lot of stuff and to get a result as well that's the other thing it's like you know i know there are a lot of people that first start out and i did it when i first started out i thought it was brilliant it's like oh yeah i've got this nailed it's dead easy and then as you start to kind of unpick it you know the the layers start to kind of show themselves and you reach certain plateaus and and then you kind of it almost falls back to to the artist kind of thing where you sort of see your your flaws you know the things that you can't do and then you either give up at that point or you know you pick yourself up and think right now I'm going to I'm going to do it and we've all done it you know as instrumentalists as mm-hmm. as, as as writers but it's it's exactly the same thing so to answer your question, yes, I have done stuff that, if I'm quite honest, I wish I hadn't done. Yeah. But I learned something from it. It could be anything. It could be a technical thing or it could be a social thing, you know, how to deal with a particular yeah. awkward bass player. Yeah. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I'm not saying that, Si, at all. No. Si, <laughs> <Sigh's> a joy. <laughs>
how have you maintained your enthusiasm for the job? When we first met you, you were trying to build a studio mm -hmm. and then you became part of Two Fly mm -hmm. and built Two Fly 2. Mm -hmm. And I think for a while, for us anyway, like the second Two Fly was a pretty magical, we associated it with getting music made mm -hmm. in a way that we really, really mm -hmm. liked. Mm -hmm. And then obviously it didn't survive for whatever reason, mm -hmm. but you haven't particularly mourned it. Neither you or Alan, you've mm. very pragmatically things just moved change. on. I think things change. You know, things change, and you, you have to accept that as, as an industry. You know, the music industry has, has always changed, and music has always changed, whether it's the sort of tastes or the way that music is uh, you know, committed to some form of medium. You know, so you kind of go from tape to digital to, you know, every, everything now. I mean, my home setup, which I, most of my work is done there. It's a tiny, tiny little room. Um, which is not ideal for certain aspects of audio, but the knowledge that I've acquired has informed me to buy the right things. So I've not bought speakers that are ginormous mm -hmm. because you know the bass that they produce in a small room is just ridiculous and, and would just make the room, you know, would render the room unusable. So I bought very small speakers that were very detailed. Presumably you're getting results at home. Yes. That would have been unthinkable 20 absolutely, years ago. Absolutely. And that's what's changed. Yeah. But what you couldn't do at home is record a band no. like 65. No, but you need a tracking room. Which is why we go but, yeah. to a residential yeah. studio. Again, to go back to the original question of me working with stuff that you know I haven't been fond of, I tend not to do it now. You turn it down? I turn it down, yeah. Whereas five, six years ago, I wouldn't have turned it down. For the good of the studio, for the good of yeah, Two yeah. Fly, yeah, yeah. for getting those bookings in. Yeah. Yeah. To make, to make, you know, to have the calendar filled up so that you, you could kind of keep operating for the next month. Yeah. You know, because studios do have overheads. You know, they're not they're not cheap places to run. As an outsider, it seems to me that it's a terrible time for studios. But I th I always think that my opinion on stuff like that is tainted by being in sixty five because mm. we're inherently involved with things that are struggling because mm. we're always struggling. <laughs> it's just interesting to me how so much of this makes up what is the music industry, mm. whereas. It's so often talked about how much people are struggling, particularly in the UK as well, because if you go to Belgium or Holland, there's quite a lot of funding for stuff Exactly, like the government or whatever, some other kind of body prop it up. Yeah, so you've got these really nice places yeah. or festivals or yeah, yeah. whatever. Whereas in the UK, I've always thought it has something to do with how good a lot of the music is in, in the UK, like over the last 50 years, like mm. the alternative scene, a little bit like in America, is over and over again produces, you know, new waves of, of interesting stuff. It's mm -hmm. because everyone has to um, struggle so much. Mm. So really the people who finally got things done, got things made, had had to really fight for them. Whereas it seems as all this software and stuff has made it easier to make records mm -hmm. from one level, music's got more boring. But that might just be me getting old. I don't think that makes sense. It does make sense. I don't think it's difficult for all studios. I think, you know, e even on a, a Sheffield level, there are some studios that are doing really well. Yeah. I just think that, again, you know, it's a changeable thing. And 10 years ago, a lot of people went to Two Fly and there were less studios. There are more studios in, in town now, again, because it's cheaper. As long as you're kind of slightly out of town and you, you know, you can afford the rent, then you can, you can just buy a computer and an interface and some mics and a few cables. And that's it done. Mm. Whereas, even when Two Fly was made, I mean, you know, that they were—that's quite a big room. And the stuff that Alan bought, you wouldn't—you wouldn't really need. But it does separate to a certain extent, you know, the slightly more amateur 
things to the to the more professional things. One thing that kind of I don't know if it annoys me or or if I just yeah maybe I'm just a little old for it is the, the use of the same drum samples. You can just mic any old kit up in any old room, however, and then just add drum samples to make it sound like it wasn't recorded in that room. Yeah, and from a production point of view, it always loses some soul. Somehow it, it does, and yeah. I don't. I, I can't because it sounds amazing. You know, it's like the samples actually sound better than what it would have done, even if it was recorded in a decent room and tracked decently. The yeah. samples do sound better, but there is something. There's some disconnect. Yeah. And I, I, maybe it's me and maybe it's just a psychological thing, but I, whenever I hear a record that's produced like that, instantly I can tell it's been done like that. Yeah. And not just because I've got experience of, I can identify the sample, but, you know, down to, um, you know, that impulse responses of cabinets and things like that for yeah. guitars. You yeah. just think, this is just, it's 2D, it's not 3D. Yeah. I don't believe that you've got them sounds out of that room. <laughs> Uncanny Valley. Yeah. Of sound. Yeah. And, and again, I'm not knocking them sounds. I don't want to knock people that do it in that way because some people do some incredible things like that. But things that sound incredible are incredible because the songs are incredible because the performances are still incredible. Yeah. Go back and listen to records that you thought sounded incredible mm -hmm. and so full of energy. And mm. actually, they're very thin, mm. lo-fi recordings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But your brain's not picking up on that. You're picking up on the, and the energy of... And the quality of the writing. Right. In some studio in the middle of nowhere yeah. for as little money as possible someone's made a record mm. and I think that's what uh, you know as a teenager you'd pick up on you'd be like that's, that's incredible but then you go back and you're like well actually this is nothing it's hissy weird <laughs> but you just get that it's people really believing in something mm. and I think that's what makes records exciting it is and they also sounded different like one record sounded very different from another this is another kind of one of my bugbears of you know particularly in certain genres it, there's very little distinction yeah sonically yeah from one song to another and it's not just the sonic distinction it's like everybody's kind of playing the same sort of riffs mm. in the same way it's a double-edged sword isn't it mm. the easier music gets to make the more equal it is everyone can make music that's yes. ob that's obviously yeah, yeah, democratic yeah. democratic obviously a good thing but uh, at the same time there's a really unhelpful thing about music which is it's important and yeah, it um, is, yeah. and there's layers of social relations that constitute meaning in music mm -hmm. that can never be unraveled no. but, but a or kind of yeah. an ocean of very similar sounding music devalues itself kind of yeah um, and just because it sounds good doesn't mean it is good yeah and the more of it there is the yeah. less interesting it absolutely to, to absolutely you. which is kind yeah. of feeds back into what you were saying about you know bands or artists that have struggled mm. there's kind of there's an, there's an extra layer of something like we've always embraced not in knowing entirely what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and that's really important, I think. I've always thought yeah. that's really yeah, yeah, important. Yeah. Someone asked us on Twitter if they could buy our Ableton Live template, which I didn't really know how to answer because... Um, I don't know what that means. I mean, well, I guess I get... I, we've never ever no, used a, a template, template, but I get, you know, if you watch mixing tutorials or something on YouTube, I'm sure there's plenty of like practices in which in which you sort of, you have your... You know your bus is set up. You have your go-to yep. effects chains or whatever, and I can see that there is some sense in there sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think it's, an, it's a really interesting question. Like, um, but we don't have. We've never had like at the writing stage anything like that. We haven't even got the template of two guitars, bass, and drums. No, you know, no, we've, no. everything sort of starts much more ephemerally than that. Um, it's as and when it arrives, I guess, isn't it? In terms of what the 
the writing is dictating to you what you're going to use. Yeah. So do you think there's some sort of unseeable or very visible loop going on between technology like Ableton and the way people get information through stuff like YouTube, whereby people, they're looking for like models of how to make music? Because really, it used to just be that you got in a room and made some noise with people. But do you think more and more people are looking for a pattern to sort of fit to i'm not i'm not sure i agree with that i'm just it's that to a certain extent particularly people that are new to it you know there's a lot of information that's available because it used to be that you picked up a guitar you ended up with your friend making noise yeah and it two two or three years later you would have saved i don't know what 100 quid to go into a studio and you'd meet someone like you who would say i've done this that guitar sounds like a wasp so i'm gonna just do this for you and then you'd go oh okay you're right, that does sound like a wasp. I was having a lot of fun mm. with my wasp. <laughs> Unless the wasp is what it's meant to sound like. Exactly. <laughs> but there would always be someone like you or Alan at the end of a bar with a pint of Guinness saying, you don't want to do that quite like that. But mm. it wouldn't be a YouTube tutorial saying, this is how you get that great, sweet tone. Yeah, it would just be, just put that down for a minute and we'll do this. And then you'd go away again and probably because you were 17 or 18, not really listened to too much of that, but you'd take something on board and then you'd build up over 10 years if you were still playing that, yeah, okay, yeah. this is how it's really going on. But a lot of those companies that are making gear and a lot of those things are so sophisticated that you're aware of them. So you're like, I want this and I'm going to do this to it because that's that amazing Dave Gilmore sound or whatever. Yeah, that's the, the kind of preset mentality, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of gear manufacturers do build that in because it makes their gear look good. Yes. For it, for it to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wonder if it's the same as the way of making music you were just talking about when we were 17, 18 or whatever, before YouTube tutorials existed, bought a guitar pedal that Kurt Cobain had. Or, yeah. Mm. Um, you know, I was just endlessly making music, borrowing chords from New Order songs, trying to recreate Blue Monday over and over again. Those people didn't directly explain to us in YouTube videos how to do that, but it's the same sort of, um, well, I want to make music that sounds like these people at first, you know. It's a really big part of how music works, isn't it? You interpret or you even mimic things that you think are really cool. Yeah, I think that is part of the learning thing. Oh, yeah, I did exactly the same thing. That's how I learned to play guitar was the same thing, just by going on. I like that record. And, you know, tabs didn't exist, the internet didn't exist, so you couldn't just go on there and go, like, grab the tab for it or whatever. Yeah. It may appear in a weird American magazine, but most of it, you had to listen, you had to, listen to the record and work it out. Yeah. And you'd probably work it out wrong. But what it did was it trained your ear and, yeah. and informed your taste and your own kind of thing yeah plus if you're working out wrong then you've made your own you've made thing. your own thing exactly yeah. but it can't be as good trying to do that from a more highly produced youtube sanctioned video i think it depends on the maker. yeah it does it does it does you know, if it's like from a, a software company or a gear company then there's there's clear motives involved if it's from like some YouTube celebrity, there are YouTube celebrities that just review music technology mm. that are more famous than we will ever, ever be. Mm. But you know, but what, what, what's, also, what's also going on there is that actually from a more like utopian perspective, if everyone just made music for themselves and bands and this sort of hierarchy of music performing like disappeared, arguably that's a much happier future. There's nothing wrong with saving money, buying some modular synth gear, sitting in your bedroom all weekend playing it never once thinking about releasing it mm. or performing it and just doing it entirely for yourself if you can learn new techniques through videos like that 
then it's just a new or a different way of music that I guess that we all have a, some sort of slight blind spot for because we've always had the ambition or the, the desire or the need to objectify our music or ourselves. Isn't the point of art that it is somehow in the public domain? It's part of what you're trying to do always, isn't it? You want people to hear it and you want to communicate something to people. We do. Is anybody making music for themselves? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they will be. Can that be classed as art? So art has to involve a recipient? I think so, to a certain extent. Maybe. Mm. It has to have some opinion formed of it. I think I agree with you, but I feel it's unfair because it sounds like art is somehow more important than any of these other things. And I don't think it is. It's a good question. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure how we got here, but... No. No, Which that's is good, the beauty it? of it. Yeah. I had a technology teacher who, who came up to me and I was drilling a hole in a piece of plastic and it was on fire <laughs> and everybody else was building like <laughs> ships or something and he went, well, this isn't for you, is it? And I was like, no, it isn't. Uh, this happened to me in PE as well, actually. The teacher said, get off, go and play with the girls. I was like, where? And he was like, it's raining. It was like inside, they're playing netball. And I was like, okay, there's literally no downside to this at all. Um, but <laughs> but sure, I'll go inside and play netball with the girls. And I had a Nirvana t-shirt on and he said, oh, oh Nirvana. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, I really like Nirvana. I was like 14. And he was like, well, you can go in the, the room where they put the... Um, the kids who we put in isolation, there's no one in there, uh, and play guitar if you want while wow. in, in my lesson. And I was like, great. And he was like, I'll go and print you. And he printed me off Nirvana tab. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing he did was he gave me, and he said, you know where Nirvana get all this stuff? I was like, no. And he was like, he gave me a copy of uh, the Pixies, Come On Pilgrim. Right, wow. Who is like... <laughs> so hang on. So, just, just, so this is your technology teacher? This is my technology teacher. He didn't want me in his class. I was annoying you him. you were crap at whatever it was you were doing would it was like this work, yeah. plastic work yeah 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 and he we'll was like go and get a, yeah he was like well if that's what you're into you can do this exactly and then he printed me out all the pixies tab and he put it in a folder for what me and he used to hide it for me <laughs> and I used to go and play this guitar brilliant and obviously got into lots of stuff that I'm into now like well Sonic Youth was next and, and then My Bloody Valentine and then on and on anyway I saw him in um the supermarket about two months ago and he didn't clock me at all he was behind me in the queue and I walked out the supermarket and I went no I've got to say something so I went back in and he was putting his beetroot through and I tapped on the shoulder and I said I won't you won't remember me and he was like no I don't <laughs> please leave me alone <laughs> and I was like but you I was in your technology class at my school and um you let me play guitar and you gave me a copy of this, the Pixies record. And I just wanted to say that it totally changed my life. And like, I went on to start a band that you probably haven't heard of. And he was like, what band? And like 65 days of start. He was like, no, I've never heard of it. <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> he was kind of, and I was like, so I just, I really had to tell you this um, because, you know, it really meant a lot to me. And he went, thanks. Can I, can I go now? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, fine. 
sure. <laughs> it's really good. But I am I'm really glad that I went and said it to him. Cause, yeah, um, definitely. No, and I'm kind of really glad that he didn't care. No, yeah. <laughs> but it, ch- it changed your life. Yeah. Like, that is, that happens is all the time, doesn't it? Moment, yeah. Happens all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to... I'm trying to get my shopping done, so um, <laughs> if you would finished. <laughs> yeah, sure. That was the third episode of Bleak Strategies, a podcast made by us, 65 Days of Static, about music and bands and whatever else springs to mind. Thanks for listening. Just to add, we used to record in Alan Smythe's Two Fly Studios for £250 a day, as long ago as 2004. We didn't bat an eyelid at that price, and in fact, for the gear we got to use in the results, we thought it was cheap. Making that first record really was magic. Having something you'd worked on untested come alive while Alan said impossibly interesting things about reverb and synthesizers and working on early pulp albums was an honour. Likewise, years later with Dave Sanderson making Wild Light, feeling this thing come together that all those years of playing and recording together was translating into something really coherent and exciting was just as great a privilege. Alan has a new studio now and he tells me that a lot of bands complain at having to pay half that. Alan and Dave have made demos and singles and albums for bands that went on to be very, very famous and to have long careers in music, far beyond anything 65 Days of Static could ever dream of. But they also made countless records for weekend bands and covers bands and evening bands and bands that never really went anywhere. There's no real difference at that stage and studios and rehearsal spaces like that don't differentiate. Small studios like that often operate at a loss, at great sacrifice to the people that run them, and they're absolutely vital to a music industry that can afford to nurture new music less and less. The buildings where those rehearsal rooms and studios were situated as well were absolutely key to our experience. A lot of them have gone now, particularly in Sheffield, knocked down to make way for inner city living, outside investment opportunities, and even the mass housing solutions of the 50s and 60s have been revamped and rebranded at prices far beyond the reach of working class populations they're intended for. Capitalism says so what, and maybe, indeed, so what, but another world must be possible. We've all moved a bit further out of the city to record and write music and to make way for that regeneration, to pursue cheaper rents in more obscure parts of town, and that cycle presumably will go round again but it would be hard to place a monetary value on how important those cheap ex-industrial spaces were to us and access to a small, independent, affordable studio that was fairly democratic about who it let cross the threshold. Indeed, it is vital we try and maintain these relatively non-monetized spaces for music and art to get made, particularly in a society like ours where governments, corporations and institutions are so keen to co-opt or promote artistic endeavor once established but pay little more than lip service to helping create the conditions necessary for it to happen in the first place. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye.